This podcast is part of the Game and Entertainment Network. Visit tgenetwork.net to find the latest episodes from all our shows. You're listening to Contains Moderate Peril, an independent podcast about gaming, movies, and popular culture. Written and presented by Roger Edwards. Hello, and welcome to the Contains Moderate Peril podcast, episode number 174. I'm Roger Edwards, and joining me on the show are Brian. Hello, everybody. And Sean. Hello, everyone. So, it's nice to have the old team back, as it were. Um, A few words before we proceed. Why has the Contains Moderate Peril podcast made a return? Mainly for reasons of branding consolidation. It was Professor Beege recently who tweeted about he had so many different websites and shows and things going on, and he was toying with the idea of bringing everything in under one banner. And I think, Brian, both of us ended up tweeting back, that's a really good idea to do, without sort of (laughs) looking at our own particular situation. So after some thought, it was decided upon to bring Contains Moderate Peril back as a show because it makes sense to do so. I mean, Burton and Scrooge was an interesting experiment, but um, I think we did end up losing some of our audience then because I think some people never quite realised that it was still us doing the show. But anyway, it's um, a proactive marketing move. So from now onwards, we will be putting out content under the old banner of Contains Moderate Peril. It makes sense. And while we're at it, if you enjoy Contains Moderate Peril, we would very much like you to go to iTunes and give us a five-star review because we want to grow the show and grow the audience. And the best way to do that is to get yourself on the front page of iTunes. And we can only do that if we give us five-star reviews. So write something positive it will be greatly beneficial so what do we have coming up for you on this particular episode of the show well first off we'll be looking at the old conundrum of whether exposure is suitable compensation for any sort of content creation we'll also be looking at whether mmos have effectively excluded the original players that supported the genre in its inception And finally, we'll be exploring the subject of expertise. Has the public had enough of professional critics and experts, particularly in popular culture? As ever, there's plenty to debate. So, without further ado, let's push on with this episode of Contains Moderate Peril. For those people who are familiar with him, Jim Sterling, um, games reviewer, internet personality, and shall we say game industry pundit, recently put out a YouTube video in his series, The Jimquisition, that was about the old chestnut of writing for exposure. And for people who are not familiar with that term, let me sort of give you an example you are a budding writer you either want to write about video games or movies you want to offer your opinions write reviews so you approach established organizations that already have a presence on the internet and you offer your services or they might even directly solicit your services because a lot of these sites are often looking for new writers and 
you get a steer, you're told what they're looking for, what sort of material you're going to have to produce, what the deadlines and the turnaround's going to be, and it's all going tickety-boo until you get to the thorny issue of, is there any financial compensation? And in the past, it has been a traditional get-out-of-jail card to say, well, we can't actually afford to pay you because we're not a profit-making concern, but hey, you get a great opportunity to present your work to our readership, you will be getting quote-unquote exposure. And it's an argument that has been used time and time again by multiple organisations. Dare I say that in the past it is something that we've even done on Contains Moderate Peril when people have submitted articles or offered to um, have their work featured. However, Jim Sterling in his video um, gave an example of an organisation that shamelessly exploited people. So it seems to be a practice that, particularly in recent years, is becoming less and less credible. It just seems to be a cynical response by people that want free stuff and to not have to make any sort of concession towards their contributors. So, where to begin on this subject? Brian, have you encountered writing for exposure during your time as a blogger and a content producer? Yes, on both sides of it, unfortunately. I, I think exposure is a code word possibly for exploitation, perhaps, because that's essentially what you're doing mm -hmm. or having done to you. Yep. Yeah, it was, you know, hey, you want to grow your blog, come write this article and have it on mine. What do you pay? Well, you know, you get you get the exposure of my audience. That's worth something to you. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but... So in your experience, you've obviously submitted work to somebody else. How did that actually pan out? Did it end up driving any further traffic to your own blog or your own site? Nope. Never. <laughs> free made a free post for them i guess did you ever get any financial remuneration uh from that type of thing no i did have a a setup where i was writing for somebody for pay but it was explicitly for pay with a contract and i was paid so much per article and yada yada and so that was a different setup sean how about you have you personally encountered this in any way shape or form well, in my circles, it's probably rarer to get paid for writing, to be honest, because everybody I know obviously does it as a, as a hobby, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, I've written one or two pieces for Contains Moderate Apparel. You have indeed, yes. But, but of course, I don't know if you're getting paid for that, let alone me. So that didn't feel like writing for exposure. It felt like I just wanted to write something and I knew you'd be likely to publish it if I asked you to. Mm -hmm. um, but... Unless you can, count, uh, you can count one of those unsolicited emails about writing WoW guides. I'm not really sure. You must have had one of those. This is a rite of passage. I've had all sorts of solicitations to produce material, um, usually from very dubious outlets. I, I just tend to automatically just 
add them to my spam filter because I'm just too focused on producing my own content and growing and developing my own site, which is still, even after all these years, is an ongoing concern. And yes, you're quite right. In, in the times where I have actually, I, I believe I actually approached you to say, can I republish some articles that you had previously on your own? blog and I republished those and um, it's, again it was just a straightforward situation of I can I can republish them they will be seen by uh, possibly a few more people but contains moderate peril to this day does not generate any profits it's um, it's um, an institution that shall we say runs at a loss but it's it's something that I'm prepared to do because I like a presence on the internet and and I I think that's the situation for a great many people, isn't it? That they stump up for their domain name or they they stump up for the hosting of their podcast and it's just it's just something that they take as read that they do because that's the cost you have to have a presence on the internet. But I, I think most people harbour a, a brief idea of, oh, is there any scope for monetization? And I think most people get wise to the reality of the situation very, very quickly. Yeah, like in my case, I, you know, I only ever really wrote because I felt I had something to say yeah, or, or a burning desire to say something or to be part of the conversation. And the idea that I might ever get paid for that was, was pretty far from my mind. I think maybe there's a difference between you approaching an outlet and offering to write for them and the outlet approaching you and asking you to write for them. Um, you know, one way is a donation, perhaps, because you initiate it, but I think the other way should clearly result in some kind of compensation, if possible. Well, for people that haven't watched the, um, the video, I'll put links in the show notes. Yes, we will be having show notes again. <laughs> Brash Games, which was the UK-based website that was the subject of Jim Sterling's dissection of this issue, they really did act abominably towards their writers, uh, particularly one writer who left. The moment that he sort of resigned and said, well, you've not paid me, you've not upheld any of your end of the bargain, they instantly removed all reference of him from the, from the website and effectively took ownership of the work that he had produced which is, you know, scandalous when you think about it. Not only do you not get the exposure, but you don't even get the retrospective exposure because your name is purged from their website. You know, that might even bring up some copyright issues which are out of our purview, but at least where I live in America, when you write something, you own it, whether you register it or not. And the, you can assign those rights to somebody else for pay or just give them to somebody else. If, if that writer had a contract, let's say, because you would assume that this thing is, you know, people, smart people sign things, right? If, if he signed something and said, hey, I will be getting this for giving you this, and he gave them that and didn't get whatever it was in return, it's very possible that legally he still owns that stuff and they just stole it from him. So, you know, we don't know all the particulars and it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of life, I'm sure. But, you know, that, that's, that's pretty shady, if that's the case. Quite. But like so many if issues of, of this nature, it's not something you can go to an external organization for. If you have been treated in an illegal fashion, it's up to you personally to then initiate proceedings, which then means nothing happens until you hire some sort of legal representation and you're then entering a very lengthy process that's 
requires a great deal of capital investment before you see any sort of results. It's, it's effectively, it's something that exists in principle, but practically enacting it, some sort of legal recourse is not really within the, the scope of most budding writers who are just scraping by. True, but I just throwing this out there. If the damages were low enough, you know, a couple thousand dollars, you, at least in America, you can go to small claims court mm-hmm. and, and you do it all yourself. But that doesn't mean that it will be judged in your favor, nor does it mean if you get a judgment in your favor, you will ever be able to collect on that judgment. You know, and there's an added factor at play here because it, it's it's a hobbyist, uh, like games media is is a hobbyist media. So people are writing about their passion and their hobby, and, and people are excited at the prospect of getting into games media. Lots of people want to do it. It's highly competitive, even though in reality, I think that the conditions and pay are very poor. Um, so because of that, it's easier to get people to write for free. You, you would look at a company like Brash Games, if you'd never heard of them, and say, oh, they've got 75,000 followers on Twitter. They must be a, a pretty big games website. I should... Uh, I should write for them. You know that that will uh, that will get my name out there. That will help me uh, get known amongst bigger websites. But it's it's a false economy because there's so many people who are willing to do it that there's always somebody in line right behind you anyway. So the minute you try making demands, then they don't have to satisfy those demands. Especially when we live in an age where there are people advertising to write content for your site on Fiverr for trivial sums of money. Exactly. Brian, do you ever think that there was a time when offering people exposure was a legitimate quid pro quo to present with a writer? Or do you think it's always been a slightly bogus claim? Considering how much the internet has changed. I mean, you you roll back 10 or 15 years when you'd be writing for sort of sites that would sort of built on hand-coded HTML <laughs> <laughs> or sites set up on GeoCities and stuff like that. Do you, do you ever feel that exposure has been a legitimate form of payment to offer people? Possibly. I mean, you could argue it still could be a legitimate form of exposure. Um, I have in the show notes, and this is a non-gaming example, but if you are familiar with the Huffington Post. Yes. The Huffington Post was built on this business model. They had people write for them who for the most part, were not paid. They did it for the exposure, and, and I'm talking big-name people, politicians and celebrities even, and, and all of this, and they got sold for $350 million to AOL. So that's a very lucrative business model, isn't it? So Very much so. And I'm not saying that that's not legitimate, because it, it was always known up front. So, but, but yeah, to, to your point, yes, perhaps before Twitter and before Instagram... And before all of these other ways that we have to promote ourselves, it was harder to get exposure, and that was a good way to do it if you were willing to do so. And, and quite frankly, for gaming content, any one of us could probably throw 500 words on a page in, what, less than an hour? Um, and, and give it to somebody and say, hey, are you interested in posting this? And stick my name on it, and, and maybe that would help, maybe not, but it doesn't take a lot of effort. But now you have so many avenues, in my opinion, outside of that why almost why would you do it unless it was a very specific large outlet that could help you demonstrably yeah i think you're right about that i think it was probably more beneficial when the internet was a much smaller place than it is now 
and where there were just less avenues for people to kind of publish their own work if they, if they want to. I mean, you know, when you had the internet equivalent of writing for a newspaper almost, the websites were so popular, then it might have been valuable. To me, what this seems to be indicative of is this transition that the internet has made in recent years. It's It's gone from being like the virtual equivalent of fanzines. Do you remember that in the late 80s, early 90s, where home computers or home publishing sort of arrangements started to bleed through to the wider public so you would sort of be able to type up a fanzine and 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 literally print it off and then have to cut the pages up and arrange the pages by hand and then assemble a master copy and then take it down a pronto print and you know it, people would create fanzines for things like football bands that they like niche market fan sort of orientated genres and and it's the internet has sort of mirrored that and now you won't get these sort of crudely put together sort of paper fanzines if anyone's going to print something now it's it's got to be of the highest visual quality and the internet has gone through the same transition from this sort of underground press people working in their basement to now it's just slowly getting swallowed up by commercial entities everything is sort of corporate driven now and therefore this sort of quid pro quo something for something people helping each other out sort of very sort of 70s sort of mentality has just been eradicated and just replaced with okay this is a corporate gig i want as much from you with as little reward as possible preferably i won't pay you at all and it's just a reflection of that this is no longer the sort of touchy-feely utopian environment that people originally envisioned that the internet would be it's now just yet another corporate commercial marketplace and it's the market that drives the changes i couldn't agree more so what do we say now then to people who are budding writers do we say to them don't bother submitting your work to anyone else I personally would encourage them to focus on their own site and indulging in, I know it's a horrible phrase and I somewhat despise it myself, but you are your own brand. So that's what I would advise people to do. Rather than schlepping your wares around to other institutions, just set up your own presence on the internet and keep throwing material at it, grow it. Let Google do your work for you. What do you think, Brian? Well, if you want to write, you have to write, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, the the writing you do today that probably nobody's going to see because you're new and you don't have an audience is also the writing that you can go to an outlet that will pay you and point to and say, look at what I did. And I didn't just say I did it. I actually did this. This is a sample of my writing. This is my writing over time. Look at how my writing's gotten better. This is what I can do for you. It's a portfolio, isn't it? Yes. If nothing else. I always think of the line, I think Charlie Brooker said it before, which is it applied for writing. It applied to, uh, you know, writing on the internet, writing for websites, uh, video, making TV, radio, all that stuff. Do it yourself on the internet in your own place. And if you're good enough, they'll beat a path to your door. It's as simple as that, really. You can do it all on your terms. It's curious because you mentioned, Sean, particularly gaming-related writing is still sort of this quasi 
fan slash is it professional, is it not professional sort of remit. This doesn't happen to musicians. Musicians just set themselves up a website or a presence on YouTube, put their material there, and if it gets the eyeballs and gets the exposure, they then get offered a corporate gig or an indie gig or offered something. They it, it, This malady of sort of getting exploited for free seems to be mainly focused on sort of writing. I think so with writing because the barrier to entry to writing is lower as well, isn't it, than than it would be for, say, video creation. But again, it's the... It, I think it's the subject matter itself and because it's a relatively new um, form of media and the criticism around it and games writing is still in its infancy in many ways and hasn't, and many ways also hasn't decided what path it's going to go down yet in terms of how criticism should be handled. But because of that, there are many bright-eyed and bushy-tailed young people excited to get into it and that always means that it's easy to be exploited. Let's just for a moment sort of look a little bit beyond this. To me, this strikes me as being slightly similar to internship culture. The idea of coming to work for an organisation and the most they offer you is out-of-pocket expenses, but you don't get paid. You just go and do X amount of weeks work with the organisation in the pious hope that you're going to impress them enough to be taken on board permanently. And... I know internships have got a very bad press in the UK at the moment because they seem to be the exclusive prerogative of of the middle classes who effectively can afford to subsidise their kids in internships and people from, say, working class backgrounds or any sort of issue or finances are excluded because they just can't afford to work for free. Yeah, I think it's very much the same phenomenon. You know that, and it inevitably locks out a lot of people because not not everybody can live in London and not get paid, basically. Yes. But, you know, I'm sure there must be an equivalent in games media where if you're willing to write 20 pieces for free for a day for a news aggregation games website, then, you know, I'm sure that would would help you get a job. But you need the financial support of someone to be able to indulge such a habit. What's that like? Is, is it the same in the US, Brian? Is there still this sort of um, ongoing situation where internships now just seem to be the, exp- you know, the prerogative of just certain people? Well, when we talk about internships, I kind of think of the Silicon Valley companies that leaned on those very heavily mm-hmm. for the past decade. Uh, you know, people, college students wanting quote-unquote workers so it's not just silicon valley it's a lot of businesses use it but that is actually rapidly rapidly going away and there are they are being forced to pay those people wages fair wages because they were working for free you you just don't do that you know the uh, the the government has been cracking down on that or at least has in the past i don't know what the new government would do about it they, they probably would let everybody work for free if they could but <laughs> Uh, I don't know. It, it's a it's a thorny issue. I could see, perhaps you know, as part of a college program where you get college credit instead of pay, maybe that's worth it to you mm-hmm. as a student, right? Yeah. And maybe you're doing that over the summer break, and you're only doing it for a short period of time, three months, and it gives you exposure, and you could also possibly get a job. That's usually how these things work. It's almost like a trial period but you had people that were doing it for longer and longer periods of time and working completely for free. 
And, you know, at some point that becomes an employee, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> and that's, I think that, that shoe has dropped or is in the process of dropping and these companies are realizing we can't have that. The other industry, by the way, that does this big all over the world is the restaurant industry. There are actually in the kitchens of some very big and fancy restaurants a lot of unpaid people. In fact, sometimes the unpaid people outnumber the paid people. They're doing it because it's a it, it's it's a boost to their career and they might get noticed and all of that. But that's that's a hard ass day to work for 12, 15 hours a day for nothing, in the hopes that you get noticed by somebody and get a job, right? I mean, they're doing it voluntarily, but that's, you know, whenever you sit down for a meal at a nice place, you know, you kind of have to think about those things, don't you? What, what's, what's, not only what's the wait staff being paid and all of those people, but now the, the, the back end staff isn't, possibly isn't being paid anything. Now, you said something to me when we chatted the other day, Brian, um, about how Mechanical Turk had, had sort of effectively made you feel quite strident well not strident quite vociferous about the fact that if you're doing something performing a task for someone regardless what it is you know if there is a promise of payment it should be delivered on because i believe there are a couple of gigs that you did where they messed you about and stiffed you on payments or didn't quite give you what they promised yeah i've become a little bit more mercenary about it because now i'm in a situation where i'm although i'm choosing to do it voluntarily it is a very clear, you know, this is the task, and you either, you know, I, I, they aren't, I don't have a job, right? So it's not a sign to me, it's I'm choosing to do it. So if it pays five cents and it says we want you to do this, then I expect that five cents. If it pays five dollars, I expect the five dollars, as long as I do what they say. So yeah, I, I, you know, this this might be the future of work in a way because when you work for a market like Mechanical Turk, you don't, you're not an employee of anybody. You're an independent contractor legally. So no taxes are taken out. So, you know, you're going to have to pay those separately. Social security here in the United States, you have to pay all of that yourself and you get no benefits. There's no health, there's no retirement, there's no anything, which works really well for all the companies putting that work out there, doesn't it? When, when they don't have to pay the benefits and they don't have to have an employee on their books, it, it's very much in their favor to have contractors. And that's why the contracting uh, business, which is what I was in all my life, has been massive for, for a few decades now. But it, it, you know, everything that benefits an employer seems to very much not benefit an employee usually. <laughs> There's a very direct correlation, it seems. Mm. And the, the Mechanical Turk, I, I don't know what I was expecting when I got into it, but I'm starting to realize that I, I hesitate to use the word exploitation because, like I said, I, I, I can choose not to do it. I'm voluntarily doing it. But I do believe that they are ex, exploiting in a way that workforce because it's way, way, way stacked in the requester's favor, in my opinion. That sounds like a dystopian future. It might be. I mean, there's a lot. Apparently, I've I've run into a lot of people who are researching this. A lot of colleges and universities out there, and this is a huge topic that I didn't even know existed. And it, it is, you know, not only micro work, which is what that Mechanical Turk website really is, and there's a bunch of them. There's not just that one, 
but the you know what's employment going to look like going forward and i and it's once you get exposed to it it's really interesting to think about because I would say most people, if you say a job, they say, oh, yeah, you know, you go for an interview and you accept a job and they pay you whatever hourly or salaried, right? And you do whatever they tell you during the 40 hours a week or whatever it is that you work and then the rest of the time's yours. Well, we're moving towards these markets where that's not necessarily the way it is anymore. Like, I can work 24 hours a day on Mechanical Turk if I wanted to. I can work at 2 a.m., which I have because I, I couldn't sleep one night and I just got up and decided to work. So you get a lot of flexibility, but I'm also getting peanuts for, for what I'm doing. You know, Again, my choice, I want to make them very clear. You know, I'm not doing it for a living either. I'm doing it because it's interesting and a hobby. But what happens, look at what Uber's doing, right? And Lyft and some of these other companies. How are they treating their people? Are they treating them well? Well, if you look at the news, maybe not, right? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But I would suspect more not than, than yes, right? It's funny you should say that because of my personal situation, I have two disabled parents in their 80s. Um, carers are a big factor in our life. And I discovered a website the other day in the UK called Super Carer, which is effectively the Uber of carers. You just want a carer to come around and look after a, a, a disabled adult or a child or something along those lines. You do it all via an app on your phone and a carer turns up and... To me, it has all the pros and cons that Uber has as far as taxis go. And it's just very worrying. It's just very worrying, this shift in employment and the way we look at employment and what responsibilities your employer has and what what obligations you as the employee have. I, 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 I'm, I'm concerned about these changes. I won't stray too far into politics, but unemployment benefit, benefits you get when you're out of work. From my perspective, they are there to help you sustain your family while you look for work to get yourself back into employment. And then you get into employment and you come off the benefits and you pay your taxes and everything's tickety-boo. In the UK now, we're looking at a situation where they want you to work for your state benefits. It's like, well, haven't you already worked and paid your taxes? And if you are working for your benefits, you're never going to be able to have the time to find the job that you do want. Yeah, and I mean, you're going to be working almost full-time hours for, you know, £80 a fortnight or something like that. Exactly. It's 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 very worrying. But like I said, I, I don't want to sort of um, go down that road. Um, that's, that ultimately is a separate discussion. Just briefly returning to Jim Sterling and to wind up this discussion, do you feel that he was right to call out Brash Games? Yeah, I always think he's right about these things on the whole. You know, I think, I think he... He exposes important issues in the industry. I, I think it's within his rights to call them out. Um, if we are going to move forward with this sort of gig economy concept and live in a world where we are, horrible phrase warning again, our own brand, then we need to fight our corner. If you are providing anyone with a service, then you shouldn't do it free of charge. Massively OP is um, a great website for um, 
conjuring up points of discussion. And they had one recently under their massively overthinking um, moniker. Um, this is a regular um, think piece that they produce in which they come up with, a, with an MMO-based talking point. And I must admit this particular question was quite intriguing because as soon as i saw it i thought i've got opinions on that and um that doesn't happen that often these days because i've got quite lax when it comes to issues of gaming anyway it was postulated by one of their readers and they had left a statement on a previous thread to the following effect are mmo players becoming a minority in their own genre and to sort of put it another way, there seemed to be a sort of undercurrent of complaint that old school MMO players have been thrown out of their own party. And as per usual with, um, with Massively OP, they got think pieces from all their major writers and they were quite a diverse set of opinions. But I must admit, it did get me thinking. So... Um, who wants to kick off? Who, who had immediate thoughts on this piece? I had lots of thoughts. I think that, yes, they're right. They are a minority within the genre. But with what the genre has become, I don't think that's really going to be a huge problem. Because it's become a genre of small games. Yeah, it just sounded to me like... I think what they're referring to is the people back in, say, the pre-WoW days, right? Yes, the Ultima Online sort of days, sort of, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I think for any, you know, there's probably football players that like it the way it was 30 years ago. You know what I mean? It, so things move on over time. And you can choose to move on with them or not move on with them. And whatever you choose, that's fine. It's a personal choice. But you're probably not going to stop the progress. And it's unfortunate if the progress leaves you out. If you don't like the way things are going or where they have ended up and you prefer the way it used to be, that's fine. That's a very valid thought. But it's not ever, I don't think, going to change anything. Because my guess is the reason things are going the way they are is because that's where the money is. That's where the most players are. Or at least that's where the developers think the money is and the most players are. Maybe they're not right. So if, if the old way of doing things was so great, why aren't we still doing it the old way? To my mind, what this strikes me as is a classic example of I was in at the start of a of a wave of a trend being set it was great at the time it suited my needs and purposes at the time and then commercial forces came to bear on the, the MMO genre that the evil the, the genre evolved and effectively it took the game in a direction that I am currently not happy with. Now, it's a point of view I understand and a point of view that I have a small degree of sympathy for. However, you have to temper that with the fact that does this not happen to every single creative endeavour? Because I believe one of the first comments left on this article was by Bagpuss, who's you know an established blogger, and he just said, 
this sounds very much to me like I was there at the inception of a band. I went to all their early gigs. I supported them. And then they got big, joined a big record label, became commercial, and it's no longer the band I love. And I just thought, this. This is so much a question of this. It's just, as you said, Brian, it's just once the money starts materialising, it then shapes the destination of the product. Well, I think he was originally actually talking about um, this in the context of the fact that there are less MMOs than there are survival games as well, which for me just reflects the fact that the nature of online gaming has uh, not just evolved commercially, but evolves in terms of creativity, right? In the same way that you'd expect uh, a genre to evolve as it always has done in video games, right? We went from text adventure RPGs, you know, to games like The Witcher or, uh, or Dragon Age. We went from Duke Nukem to Half-Life within, within eight years or something. And it seems inevitable to me that creativity will mean that this change is going to occur. And it seems perverse to want to hit the stop button at some point in that process. You know, the idea to go, no, I, I'm happy with Zork. This is all I ever want from the genre. It should stop here. I just want this with updated graphics. It seems, you know, creatively limited. To me, this raises an issue that I've touched upon in the past about ownership. The fact that any other product that you buy, you relate to just as a product. I buy this brand of coffee. I enjoy this brand of coffee. And I buy it habitually. But for some reason, gaming seems to be treated differently because it's obviously it's not consumed in the same way as just imbibing a liquid. It's, it, it's possibly more nuanced than that. But it, ultimately, games are a product. And yet so many of the gamers that play them seem to think that because they give something their support, it puts them on the board. It means that they're somehow involved and part of the actual organisation and group that creates and shapes this particular game. It, it, it's this curious sort of concept of some sort of vicarious ownership. And therefore, I'm more than just a customer here. My money, my time, my adulation for this product means that I have some say. And it, this seems to be an idea that habitually returns. And it's very, very common on the massively OP website. Well, if you look at angry gamer men videos on YouTube, they're almost universally standing in front of a wall of every video game they have ever bought in their life, along with, you know, figurines and T-shirts and posters. And, and it goes beyond uh, the level of loyalty you would normally expect. It, it becomes uh, part of people's identity, it seems. So I wonder if... The strength of MMOs in general, which to me is that they are mostly, especially the modern ones, designed to appeal to a broad selection of player types, also ends up being a weakness for MMOs in that if you're a PvPer, you look at it through the framework of the PvP, don't you? And you assume that everybody likes to PvP like you do, and if you're a raider, you assume that everybody likes to raid like you do. And so maybe there's a lot of perspective that players are missing because the way they like to play the game must be the way everybody likes to play the game in their mind. And they aren't really accounting for the fact that, like for Raiders and World of Warcraft, it, it's been commonly mentioned that it's a small percentage of the actual 
population of the people that play that game actually raid. Very small percentage, like shockingly small. But they feel it's the most important thing because it is to them, right? <laughs> it, it's, it's kind of an interesting phenomenon, I think. Which I think is why you see it reflected in the proliferation of different small MMOs now. Because I think maybe it was wrong, actually, for all these games to try and do all of these things at once. And that perhaps people would be better served by smaller games that do the things that they want, you know, without it being Wildstar. But, but the thing is, and this is what flummoxes me, people have expressed dissatisfaction with the commercialization of AAA MMOs, big budget games. They seem to be the ones that are allegedly failing these um, players. These are allegedly the games that have thrown these players out of their own party. Yet, you've only got to look at Massively OP, and it will list an incredible amount of small, bespoke, niche market MMOs that should allegedly cater for these disenfranchised players. And yet, they're still... It's like, as you said, Sean, then they, they're balking at the new niche products that are possibly even designed specifically for them, and they're just fixated on... But but no, I I want I want what I had a decade ago, and, and and that's the only thing that's going to appease me. It just reminds me of that cartoon character in Viz, Mrs. Brady, the old lady who would who just hated life and would go into a shop and ask for a quarter of a pound of that thing you don't make anymore. <laughs> exactly. What what really boggles my mind is that if you want the old stuff, it's mostly still out there, isn't it? <laughs> Ultima is still out there, I believe. I know EverQuest is still out there. And what is it, RuneScape? That's been going on for how long? Years and years and years, right? So Heck, you could emulate Star Wars Galaxies. Yeah, and, and so all of these quote-unquote old-school games exist to this day. So if you don't like the new stuff, you don't have to play it because you still have your old stuff to play. For the most part, there's been some games shut down but uh, you know, they're you know, Ultima's how old now? Twenty years old, probably somewhere in there. What I find interesting is the fact that this is a refrain you hear beyond gaming. Um, contains moderate peril until fairly recently made an effort to sort of cover quite a lot of the UK-based conventions and sort of um, gigs of that nature and. Um, we we even had a regular cameraman who would go along to these events and interact with people and, and take photos. And cosplay was one of the most high-profile things that was covered, and people were very interested in it. And cosplay is something that seems to have become the province of a few to something that's far more mainstream and possibly more commercial and more accepted. And there was also then sort of the beginning of ominous rumblings from old school cosplayers who were saying, oh, we're now being thrown out of our own party because the cameramen now turn up and they don't want to look at us who have spent six months building our costume and our sets. They just want to focus on this particularly nice, um, shapely young lady who's turned up in a very skimpy costume and she does it semi-professionally because she's got an online portfolio and a career to further kind of think the common denominator of all of the, what we're talking about is sour grapes maybe sour grapes and coupled with that money just goes to whatever sells and if you don't care for what is is popular and what is selling that's really beyond your remit to control 
It's just, that's just the way that it is. Especially if you're the type of person that doesn't care about what's selling because it's what's selling. Mm. Because there are a lot of people like that, right? Yeah. It's not that they don't like WoW. It's that they don't like what they think WoW represents. There, there, I think there's a big difference there. And I think that might be some of what we're talking about. I, I don't know that. I'm just guessing. Well, to play devil's advocate for a minute, it isn't a nice feeling if it sort of happens to you, is it? Like, uh, I've had, for example, a, a bar that we used to really like, and we used to go there all the time, and it used to be a cool place to be, and they used to play the kind of music that you like, and things like that. And then, bit by bit, the bar gets really popular, and then a different crowd starts turning up at that. And then, within, you know, a year, it doesn't cater to you anymore. It caters to a different group of people. And whilst it is nothing but sour grapes, it, it isn't a nice feeling if that happens to you. That's true. I was watching a video the other day by popular UK film critic Mark Commode, and it was on the subject of frames of reference. Mark Commode is one of the highest profile, and in my opinion, one of the best film critics in the UK. He's a very knowledgeable gentleman. Um, he actually has a doctorate in film studies. And whenever he is talking about movies, reviewing a movie, he will often refer to something similar as a way of giving you an understanding of the movie. He can say things like, it visually looks similar to, and then he will name a movie, or it involves the themes of, and the concepts of, and then he'll reference another movie which had those themes and those concepts. And I find it a perfectly acceptable way of expressing himself. In fact, it's something that other critics do or other writers do in when discussing other subjects use something that people are familiar with to highlight an aspect of the of the particular thing that you are reviewing anyway it would appear the reason he made this video is he got some pushback he got some pushback from some of the listeners who who got a little tired of him continuously continuously referencing other material um, some of them didn't like it because they said it in a joking way. They said it then means that I then have to add the title that you're referencing to my film to-do list. And yet other people seem to actually object to the fact that he was referencing something that they didn't know and they weren't familiar with and that they somehow were annoyed or affronted about that. And I thought that this just neatly sort of feeds into this current sort of mindset that seems to be quite prevalent on the internet at the moment and actually beyond the internet actually in sort of western culture per se that there is pushback and actual objection to experts that's an interesting segue into a subject that has been bothering me for a while sean Obviously, being based in the UK, <laughs> you are obviously familiar with Michael Gove's recent comments about experts. Of course. In which you professed that uh, people were sick of them. Yes. Particularly, he was talking in relation to Brexit. 
and the fact that the recent referendum in the UK was subject to a great deal of information from knowledgeable people on both sides of the argument. Michael Gove, I must admit, he did quantify that statement later. He did actually say that um, by that he meant political pundits. He wasn't saying, if you are annoyed with your doctor's um, diagnosis of your medical condition, have a go at it yourself. He wasn't actually advocating that. But I I do actually think he, he touched on a nerve, certainly from the tabloids. There just seemed to be a sort of annoyance with experts and, and and I just find that flabbergasting. Well, it's because it's um it's a very good way to uh be able to continue to think what you already think, isn't it? Mm. Because you can discredit the information that you're being given. You don't have to believe it. Even if the person giving it to you is in a position of authority to do so. And I understand why that's sort of liberating, but at the same time you know, if we head in the direction where people who know more about things uh, shouldn't be listened to, it's sort of over for us as a species. Brian, I know in the past what both you and I have discussed about this subject, and you've actually said to me, I can remember quite vividly, you actually said that there have been times when you've tempered talking knowledgeably on a subject because you haven't actually been 100% sure about how it will be perceived and received. Glad you asked me about this because I happen to be an expert on this subject. <laughs> Fair <enough. laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, I, that that's more regarding you know knowing your audience, maybe, which is kind of sort of maybe what we're talking about. Mm. Um, along the lines of, of what you're saying, I, I I wonder is it as much a a backlash against experts? Or is it perhaps somewhat of a people don't are are embarrassed or don't want to acknowledge that they don't know things because that's you know what I mean like I I don't know this thing but this guy does therefore I don't like him I think that's a big part of it and it also sort of removes the burden from people to find out about it yeah Let, let's sort of put this within a framework let's let, let, let's let's go back to the initial point of mark commode a film critic um 50 of what i write on contains moderate perils is about films when i'm writing about say for example a hammer horror film from the 50s i don't spoon feed a complete potted history of hammer who they were, what they're about, what their pedigree is, broadly what they did do, what they didn't do over a three-decade period, I do, to a certain degree, assume that the readers have a working knowledge on the subject. They at least are familiar with Hammer Studios, and that they are at least aware of the impact that they had on the horror genre. I'm not saying that they have to be experts, but they're not going to turn around and say, who are Hammer? So that's the perspective that I come from. And I I think quite a lot of writers have to do that at some point. If you're writing about video games, you have to assume that your readership is going to have a working knowledge. And if if you don't wish to do that, you then have to pitch your material accordingly. And um, I've had criticisms in the past about that. You know, you, you, you shouldn't be pursuing an unnecessarily knowledgeable or literate perspective you should 
aim to be as inclusional as possible and therefore pitch broadly your written work at the level of a 14 to 15 year old which frankly I balk at yeah which which you don't want to do and I think if if you people who have listened to you know any number of our past podcasts will probably know that I use World of Warcraft as a wow or as a MMO reference a lot right yes probably to the point where people are sick of it and, and I recognize that and, and it makes me probably seem like a big fanboy of WoW, which maybe I am, but the real reason I use WoW isn't necessarily that I like the game, although I do. It's because it's it seems to be the big one in the genre that almost everybody has either played or has some knowledge of, right? Yes. It, it's just, it's so big it's hard to miss. So to me, that's my that's that's kind of how I I calibrate things is against that because everybody I think that listens to our podcast can go back to that and go okay he he put it in this context I think I get what he's saying now because I know wow and he knows wow and that gives us that 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 point to to go off from I can't read your articles Roger about movies simply because I am the guy that says who's hammer <laughs> Yeah. What what is that? Which is fine because I'm not your audience, but but I gotta say sometimes I am interested in some of the movies you talk about, and and it's just it's very hard for me to keep up with things because where you choose to put your level of assumed knowledge at, I don't meet that bar, mm. unfortunately, and it, it doesn't really make me feel bad or stupid. It just makes me a little frustrated that I can't catch on because I'm not exactly who. You're targeting, if that makes any sense at all. Sure, and I, I understand that point. And I could adjust my writing style to accommodate a broader audience, but then there's the possibility that in doing so, I could then lose some of the other people at the other end of the spectrum. Yep. So I think all writers, critics, reviewers are, you have to draw at some point. You can't just say my net is going to be incredibly wide. You, you have to set lines in the sand. Um, and if that means that you end up cutting out a percentage of your, of, your, of your audience, then you stand or fall by that. It's like you buy newspapers, surely, according to what your expectations are and you know, what your level of, of knowledge is, I suppose. And it, it's, a, it's a universal thing across critique, isn't it? that you yeah. reference other works because those works become the language via which you talk about that medium. Yeah. Yeah, how could you do it in a vacuum? I mean... Exactly, because, you know, when you talk about video games, you talk about them in relation to other video games, don't you? Yes. Yeah, you rate them. I mean, we, we literally put number ratings on things just to be able to to somewhat broadly contextualize it as a, is this a good game or not a good game, right? Yeah. Well, look, we, we've sort of agreed on these sets of numbers, roughly, and so if something scores a 90, you can say, oh, it's probably pretty good. Maybe not for you, but... It's pretty hard to describe what a, what a band or, or a musician sounds like without describing other musicians or bands. Yeah, I mean, and, and people don't seem to get so sort of hostile towards such a comparison in in the musical genre uh, 
I can't help but think that this feeds in slightly to sort of snobbery and also an element of possible reverse snobbery where you know is is airing knowledge a good or a bad thing i mean if you're airing knowledge to try and humiliate someone or to use it in a way where you're saying i know more than you therefore i'm a better person you then you know that that's not a good thing but just generally referencing stuff because you are aware of it is that a bad thing? Is that something that people should feel threatened by? Because I can think of dozens of people who every day reference and air knowledge that I have absolutely no standing in whatsoever. And I, I, I don't feel upset or bothered by it. You know, I, I'm very grateful for the fact that they're there to share their knowledge. Doctors, for example, you know, an electrician who comes around to fix things. Um, economists who will write an article explaining why something has happened i mean surely this is something that happens every day and and the fact that there are people with different levels of knowledge is it is a good and beneficial thing why so, should it be a bad thing so this goes back to that comment you had asked me about earlier where you and i have talked and i temper how i talk about things right yeah this directly relates to this and it's because the reason i have talked to you about that is I don't want to come across as the know-it-all which a lot of times I think I am <laughs> and if if it's somebody who I feel is going to get what I'm saying and be interested in I talk one way but there are some people in my life that just aren't interested in the same things or maybe I feel rightly or wrongly may not understand some things maybe they just don't not because they're stupid but they might not have the context or the perspective on it that I do I talk about things differently with them consciously I don't know if that makes me good or bad person I don't know if everybody does this I consciously though do that and part of it is because throughout my life I like to tell people what I think and I, I think I'm a little smart not too smart but probably smarter than i am and you do i i have come across as a know-it-all and i don't like doing that because people don't like being told things when they don't care or constantly being told that they're wrong type thing you know what i mean ah right but that that is a subtle distinction isn't it um possibly giving people information when they don't require it to someone who's providing information that you need and you genuinely do not know yeah it's about context isn't it yes b b because you know the sort of thing we're talking about is, is I, sp I suppose perceived elitism isn't it yeah within criticism and and as you said th that's really about finding your audience and finding the critic for you isn't it elitism that's that's the phrase that i was reaching for because that really is a buzzword at the moment you know anybody who sort of you know I, i've got three more pokemon trading cards than you oh you pokemon elitist you it seems to be a, a, a phrase now that's being a little bit devalued because it's banded around so much i have a theory and i'm happy for people to shoot this down and they feel that it's wrong it's not part of the problem is the internet has given everybody equal participation in the past if you to have a platform there were gatekeepers that kept certain people away the internet now gives everyone equal participation so everyone can have an opportunity to express their opinions and views the next hurdle is 
not every view is of equal merit and people are trying to address that and possibly the repudiation of expertise is a way of saying my view demands equal status and merit regardless of its factual correctness and validity i without wishing to veer off too far i think that's <laughs> that's a big part of why politics has become so entrenched in recent times is a huge part of it seems to be that people have become incredibly committed to positions because they spent significant amounts of time arguing on the internet about it. They have a lot invested in it now. And some people, you know, are, are part of the discourse that just aren't really qualified to be part of it. That is elitist, isn't it? Should all views have equal merit? Maybe not. I, I think part of it is everybody has a seat at the table, right? It seems on the internet. Yes. So, so you, you know, you can, you can pull up the chair and participate I don't think everybody has the willingness necessarily or ability to reason things and be open to ideas, do they? And no. maybe that's part of the issue. Like we end up with all of these little echo chambers all over the internet and a lot of people live completely within that little zone and any idea, maybe that's the expert, you know, that, that's bursting through or, or just other people in opposite positions or whatever. Anybody that crosses that line, they immediately just shut down. We don't want, we don't want to hear that. We don't want to be part of it at all. And, and, and that really frustrates me because I'm, I, I like to learn. You know, my parents were educators and, and that, that's a big deal in my family. And when you shut ideas out you stop learning, don't you? Yes. And, uh, you know, I strongly feel that everybody, every human being on this earth, should hopefully want to learn or at least be learning, even if they don't want to, their entire lives. But I suspect because of the way the Internet is and because of the way people are choosing to participate, a lot of people aren't learning anymore. They're, they've, they're now set in their ways, at least in some areas of their lives, and it's hard to break through that. And, 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 you know, they're set in their ways to the point where even giving overwhelming evidence that, that their view is incorrect, they still believe it at this point, which is bizarre to me. But, you know, maybe that's what you said, Sean. Maybe they're just so invested in, in, in this idea that they have that even though maybe deep down they know it's wrong, they can never admit that, can they? Because maybe that makes you less of a person, or I don't, I don't know what, what the psychological reason would be. But yeah, that, so politics is a fantastic example, and there's many others. That's why we have the problems in gaming with different factions and different viewpoints, right? Yeah. The other thing that I think is an uphill struggle, particularly with youth culture, Learning and knowledge is not perceived as cool, is it? I was listening to a podcast the other day, um, um, spookily enough, with um, a popular left-wing pundit, Owen Jones, and he was just saying, you know, you want to go in and, and, and give as much information as possible to the young, and, and there is still this sort of stereotype that's perceived that the coolest kid in the class is one at the back with their feet up at the desk who, who's, who's happy to remain ignorant. And they get all the kudos and all and all the credibility. And it, and if and if you're down the front learning, you're still the nerd, and that's not a good thing. So that's another major obstacle to overcome, isn't it? Yeah, and, and the opposite of that is, if you think you know everything, why would you need to learn anything, right? Mm -hmm. And 
I think there's a lot of people out there that think they know an awful lot more than they really do. Like me. Rolling this back to the initial premise, let, let's look at it from a movie critique point of view and a gaming critique point of view, because that's pretty much what this show's about. Yes, I'm always interested in people's experiences. You know, I played this game, it was interesting because this happened. But if you can then cross-reference that with a, an experience in a similar sort of product, that shared further insight. So I, I'm not saying that if you've never played an MMO before, your first review of an MMO is going to be a very interesting review, and I certainly wouldn't um, dismiss it. But again, it comes back to context, Sean, doesn't it? It's like that's an interesting view because it is the perspective of someone who's never played this genre before. But moving forward from then, I would say it would be beneficial for that reviewer to have played a broader spectrum of products as possible because that increased frame of reference possibly gives them an insight into further areas to critique. It's to the benefit of them and to the benefit to the listener. Couldn't agree more. And so ends another instalment of the Contains Moderate Peril podcast. I'd like to say a big thank you to both my guests, Brian and Sean, for their participation on this episode. Thank you very much for having me. Enjoyed it as usual. The Contains Moderate Peril podcast will be returning later on in 2017. This episode has been a technical test specifically to set up our RSS feed to be submitted for iTunes. Once that matter has been dealt with, Contains Moderate Peril will be back on a regular basis. Until then, thanks once again for listening and goodbye. You've been listening to Contains Moderate Peril. For more information, visit ContainsModeratePeril.com and follow us on Twitter at Moderate Peril.